0: Last hour, I gave you an introduction primarily to the interpretive process. This hour, we will focus on one of the most important skills that you can develop in all the exegetical process, and that is the skill of doing word studies. And the reason for that is words are the foundation to all communication. So they are the basic building blocks of language. So you have to understand individual words. If you don't understand the individual words, then it's hard to understand everything around those words. The sentences and the paragraphs that are related to particular words. Let's talk about How do you come to some conclusions concerning words or terms? Now we're going to begin to interpret. We're trying to get at what the author intended. In our observations, we looked at this passage, and we came to the conclusion that I've come up against a word that either I do not understand Or maybe this word is crucial to this passage, and because it's so important to this passage, I better make sure that I do more work on this than probably any of the other words in this passage. And when you come to that conclusion, then you want to do a very good word study. So I want to walk you through the process of doing word studies. And what you're working towards in doing a word study is you're working towards coming to a conclusion or uh, an interpretation as to what the author intended by using that word. How is he using it? What did he intend to convey when he selected that particular word? So let's spend some time here because this is one of the most important skills that you will develop in all of your exegetical work. And in actuality, a lot of a lot of major positors, Bible teachers, they spent a lot of time on word studies. Almost every passage that I do exegesis on, I will do at least one good complete word study and oftentimes more than that depending on the passage, depending on, on the words and, the, and the, uh, the terms that are contained in that passage. So this is a, one of the most important steps. So what I'm going to share here, you'll, you'll find extremely useful, I'm hoping. And we've already mentioned that words or terms, they're the, the basic building blocks of language. So you need to understand the words that an author utilizes And when you want to do extra work on them, you want to do a word study. Now, a word study is not just going to a dictionary and seeing what the dictionary says. It's a little bit more involved than that. Or if you're dealing with a Greek word, it's more than just uh, going to a lexicon and saying, okay, this is what the lexicon teaches or says. I'm going to show you how to develop your own word study, an independent word study, And what we will be doing is essentially what the writer or editor of the lexicon did. What did they do? How did they come to their conclusion? So now you can evaluate whether or not an editor of a lexicon or a dictionary uh, did good work. And a lexicon, a Greek lexicon, Art and Gingrich, for example, what they've done is they've taken the biblical words... And they've done word studies and they've investigated how are these, how is this word used? And if they have a, whatever word they've got listed, they'll give you the different usages. A dictionary or a lexicon does not give you the meaning of words. Now that sounds wrong, doesn't it? <laughs> You're looking for the meaning of the words by going to a lexicon. But in reality, what a lexicon or a dictionary gives you is what? Rather than the meaning, it's giving you what? And this is what we want to do. Do you know what, what they do? How it's used. How it's used. Have you noticed even in an English dictionary, it'll give you one, two, three, four, five different ways the word is used. So it's not giving you the meaning per se, but from this list of usages, now... You're in a position to be able to say, oh, okay, I think this person that was communicating, I didn't understand what they were saying. I looked it up, and it can be used in these five ways, and now you're in a position, uh, they were using it in number four, or number three, or whatever, and now you have the meaning of that word, of what the speaker or writer intended. But the dictionary or the lexicon is giving you the range or the possibilities of meaning. That's what we want to do. And then we want to look at how is Paul or how is Moses or whatever, if you're in the Old Testament, Moses or whatever writer, how is he using it and what is the meaning right here in this context, in this passage? Does that make sense? That's what we're going to do. And what I'm going to give you is actually a procedure, even if you haven't taken Greek, you have tools available, or if you don't, you should get tools, and you probably already have them, where you can already do a word study in the original language, even if you don't know Greek, or even if you don't know Hebrew, all you have to do is know the Greek alphabet or the Hebrew alphabet. And if you know the Hebrew alphabet, you can do word, word studies in the from the original language. I'll show you how to do that. It's not that difficult. Or if you're just limited to the English and you don't want to go this, just one step further, you can do the same thing in the English text. But you might as well. It's just as easy to do a word study from the original language. And now you have the very precise word that that author was using. And I'll show you how to find that word without even having a Greek text. Just from some basic tools that are out there right now that you probably already have. So that's what we will, we will be doing. So words are the basic building blocks of all language. So it's important that we understand how to derive the meanings of those words. Remember, the biblical words, they're alive. They are living. Remember, Jesus says, the words that I speak are living. So there's power. There's life in these words. So word studies are not only important, but extremely valuable and give you lots of insight into the passages you'll be studying. Let's backtrack a little bit. Before I give you a procedure, let's talk a little about the characteristics of words so that you have a little bit of background and understanding of what words do. Number one, words are arbitrary signs. And when they're written, they're just a list of letters arranged such that they convey meaning. But they're arbitrary. And in English, we have chosen to use certain letters In a certain arrangement, to communicate certain concepts. So, in English, when we want to communicate a concept of something like this book, we use the arrangement of B-O-O-K. In a different language, what do they do? They use different letters and sometimes even a different alphabet to convey the same thing. So they're arbitrary, and they vary from language to language. In spoken language, we do the same thing, except it's with sounds. The sound of book conveys meaning, idea. But that sound is arbitrary, and in a different language, the sound that conveys that same concept or that same idea is different. So they're arbitrary. We assign meaning to those sounds or arrangement of letters. Now, words don't have meaning per se. I tried to illustrate this in the hermeneutical portion. Remember, I mentioned that words have a range of meaning. Words have a range of meaning. And actually, I used a circle to convey that idea. And we use the illustration of the word trunk. That word in and of itself doesn't have any meaning. It requires a context. And we mentioned that depending on the context, the meaning of that word will vary. So you have to figure out how is the author using that word from the context that he gives you, and if he's dealing with an automobile or a car, the word trunk has a certain image in our mind. The same arrangements of T-R-U-N-K, or the same sound of trunk, has a different meaning, different image that is in your head, than uh, if you're talking about an elephant. Then you're talking about something totally different. So words have a range of meaning, and I use the illustration, uh, if you're talking about a tree, that's totally different than a trunk of a car or the trunk of an elephant. If you're talking about a communication trunk line, that's different from the first three. So what I've constructed in uh, this example here on the slide is this is the range of meaning, and we have at least four different usages. And if you went to a dictionary, it would give you at least these four different usages. It would give you a meaning in terms of a car or in terms of an elephant or in terms of a tree or in terms of a communication line or, number five, in terms of a, a box in an attic, different image. So words have a range of meaning. Now, I select this word because it has a very, very broad, and you can see it very visually, it has a very broad range of meaning. Not every word has that broad of a range of meaning. So, words have a range of meaning. Third characteristic of words is the context determines meaning. Meaning is determined by context. And what we mean by that is I can use that same word in one context and mean one thing, And I can use that identical same word, the same sound, same letters in a different context and mean something different. Or one writer in the Bible can use that same word in one context and another writer can use that identical word in a different context and he intends something different. So context determines meaning. Because remember, you're getting at what did the author intend to communicate? How did he use that word? That's the bottom line. So it's determined by context. And kind of an offshoot of that, number four, but let's kind of separate these two. Fourthly, context is assigned by the author. This is very, very important. We're always looking at the intent of the author. What did the author intend? And the author assigns a meaning, just like you and I assign a meaning to the words that we use. It's assigned. And this also speaks of when an author is using a word, he has a particular meaning in view. He doesn't have the whole range of meaning in view. That's rare that, in fact, that's probably never the case that an author intends, we'll talk about some mistakes that we make in interpretation. This is one of them, where we inject all of the possible meanings in a word that an author is using in a particular context. And from the context, the author gives us the clues to help us to understand what the assigned meaning actually is, what he intends. Now, another thing to keep in mind, this is another characteristic of words, meaning changes over time. How we use words change over time. That's why today there are many modern translations that have somewhat replaced, in a lot of circles, the King James Version. The King James Version was an excellent translation But the problem with the King James Version in the 21st century is some of the words that were utilized in King James English, some of those words we don't use anymore. The meanings have changed over time. So, thus, a need for a modern translation. And even over short periods of time, here's an example... And you can probably think of some other ones. Uh, in fact, think of some words that have changed over time even as you are aware of some of those words. Can you think of some words that have changed in the process of, of time? Words in our culture that have changed meanings. Here, here's an example of one. The word mouse. Photograph, it's kind of a, it's, it's a little bit of a play on words if you would. <laughs> But this is kind of a different kind of a mouse, isn't it? Even though the cat is in the photograph, the context with the cat uh, doesn't change that this is a different kind of a mouse. And this came about as a result of computers. Before computers, there was never this concept, and actually we assigned, what do we do? Remember, words have arbitrary meaning, we assign meaning to them. Well, in our culture, we have assigned the word mouse to this contraption that helps us manipulate a computer. And in the photograph, it's kind of vivid, and you can see that. So it takes on new meaning. So there's an example. Can you think of some others now that I've given you an example? So when you thought of a mouse, say, 50 years ago, you never thought of a mechanical device that ran or was plugged into an electronic machine that had images on a screen. That idea never came about 50 years ago, or was never in anyone's anyone's mind. It wasn't as a result of Apple computers and their revolutionary idea of being able to manipulate that computer with a what we call a mouse. You see how words take on meaning over time? Not very furry at all, is it? Can you think of some other examples of how words change over time? Now you may not have noticed this one, that I, another example, but uh, I don't know, maybe you have. Can you think of another? Uh, it's probably something different, just word speaker, you know, 80 years ago, it would just be the person who's talking. Okay. Just electronic That's a good example, exactly. The word speaker, if somebody spoke that, again, 50 years ago, or maybe even more than that, the only image that came into our minds was somebody that was verbally speaking. But today, if you speak of a speaker, just like you say, it could also refer to a box that emits sound that's plugged into a tape recorder or a radio or whatever. How about the word gay? That's another one today that a few years ago that just had the idea of happiness, joyous. But today, in... Certain context, it refers to a lifestyle or a person. So, some of the characteristics of words is they are arbitrary signs. Words carry a range of meaning, so they don't have just one set meaning. Thirdly, meaning is determined by context. Fourthly, the author assigns the meaning. And when we speak, and communicate to one another, we assign meaning to the words that we utilize. We select words, and we do it so rapidly we don't think about it, but we actually assign meanings to words, and we're hoping that those that hear us are understanding what we are trying to convey. So also with the written text. And fifthly, they change over time. Now, this is extremely important uh, from the perspective of the Bible as well, because when you do a word study, you want to be a little bit sensitive to this, to see how maybe this word has changed from even the beginning of the New Testament and through the process of the development of the church, how this word has received new meaning, just like that word mouse. And I'm going to give you an example of a couple of words, in fact, there's a lot of words that uh, were given new meaning as a result of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and other words relating to things that took place when Christ was on earth so words change over time an example from the bible biblically you can think of almost every theological term and those theological terms didn't always have theological meaning almost every word one of the theological terms had a concrete or everyday meaning that was totally different from the theological meaning. I'll give you some examples. Just think of the word salvation. The word salvation comes from the idea of being in danger of something and receiving deliverance or salvation from that danger. And it could have and more likely was related to something very physical, very material. And the theological idea now we're talking about a salvation, not from some physical danger, but from an eternal spiritual danger. So even the basic word salvation, but uh, another word is ecclesia in uh, in the New Testament. Do you know what the ecclesia means? Ecclesia is it's the, the word that's translated church. That had an everyday meaning. In fact, let's look that one up. I want you to... I've done a word study on ecclesia. Turn to Acts chapter 19. I want you to notice something in Acts chapter 19. This will illustrate how words, and particularly theological words, take on meaning as they are given meaning by like Jesus Christ. He assigned a new idea here to a word that was used every day in the culture. In Acts chapter 19, would one of you read verse... 39 is the verse. Start reading in verse 38 and then read verse 39. And it may not even be translated church in that context, but the word ekklesia is used, the word for church. Read 38 and 39. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and full are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. Okay. What word there do, would you suspect is ecclesia? Assembly. 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 But what is the context here? And how is this word being used in this context? It's not being used in the sense of a church. It's like a gathering of people. Yeah, in fact, this is uh sounds like a, a legal proceeding. So we have like a courtroom situation here, an assembly to make a decision, a legal decision. See, this is an example of a word that came out of that culture that just had this idea of an assembly of people for virtually any kind of purpose. It didn't have the connotation of what we think of today when we use the word church or ecclesia. It doesn't have that connotation of an assembly of fellow Christians, other believers, for the purpose of worship or fellowship or teaching or whatever, the word is just translated assembly. That was its basic meaning. It was just an assembly of people. Now there's a another another usage in this same chapter where it's used in a different sense. Now this is the everyday sense. This is the the sense that w- it was used very commonly in the culture apart from Christianity, apart from anything spiritual. Read verse forty one. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Okay, the assembly was dismissed. They were, this legal assembly was dismissed. Same word, ekklesia, in the Greek text. But uh, go back to verse 32. It's used in a different sense there. And you might backtrack and read. Levi, do you want to read that one too? 31 and 32? And also some of the Syriarchs who were friends... Of them, of his, sent to him, and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what cause they had come together. Well, the word assembly there is ecclesia. Now, this is not a legal assembly. This is what? This is a mob. <laughs> this is a. This is on a verge of a riot going on here, and this mob, this assembly of all kinds of people in the theater are about to persecute Paul. But the word that's used there is ecclesia. So, when you go to the New Testament and you read in Matthew 16, when Jesus, and this is the first occurrence of the word ecclesia in the New Testament, when Jesus says, I will build my ekklesia... What did the disciples have in mind? A nice little building with a, with a cross on top and pews and podium in front and people seating in those chairs? They had, they probably didn't have any clue as to what Jesus was talking about other than he was going to build some sort of an assembly and they weren't even sure what kind. It's not till you get to the book of Acts where the word is used very extensively to refer to an assembly Of fellow believers, either for the purpose of fellowship or teaching or ministry, the gathering together on a particular day, and in that time they didn't have buildings, so it had no connotation of a building whatsoever. So you see how words change over time. But now, after the New Testament, and and in fact during the New Testament era, in the book of Acts... We have the word ecclesia used in this very special sense, but the word initially was taken out of the everyday usage of a term that referred to an assembly of different kinds. It could be an assembly of people for a sporting event, it could be an assembly of people for a legal proceeding, it could be just simply a mob that assembled. And by the way, it's used in the Septuagint also in the Old Testament, and it refers to the assembly of the Israelites in the wilderness in uh, one context. And obviously, that wasn't the church, <laughs> but it was an ecclesia, It was an assembly. Well, the point I'm making here is words change over time, <clears throat> and they're a sign meaning. But now, when we look back at to the New Testament... And we see the word ecclesia in most of the context it refers to this specialized usage, this theological sense or this theological usage. But uh, there's lots of examples of words acquiring meaning now in a spiritual context that have a different meaning than what was used every day on the street. So number five, one of the characteristics of words is they change over time. And sixthly, they can overlap with other words. We call those what? Words that have overlapping meaning? Synonyms. Synonyms have overlapping meanings. And sometimes the different words have a slightly different meaning than their synonymous counterparts. Synonym that they are synonyms with. So words can overlap with their meanings. And sometimes these are useful, synonyms are useful, in coming to understand the range of meaning of some words. And then seven, we have words that are connotative versus denotative. When we mean denotative, we mean normal or literal or specific meaning Connotative means that they may take additional meaning, sometimes figurative meaning, besides the uh, literal meaning, or normal or plain meaning. Sometimes just suggestive of more than the literal meaning. For example, the word dog. When we use the word dog and we refer to it in a denotative way, what are we referring to? We're talking about an animal with four legs that probably is your pet. But if you refer to that guy's, he is a dog. That has a connotative meaning. That doesn't mean that he has four legs and is a furry animal. That means that he has some characteristics. In fact, it's a derogatory way of referring to that individual. So you've added meaning to it, and you're adding more, in that case... More of a metaphorical idea to it. So words have connotative and denotative meanings as well. So you see, the, the point I'm making here, words have a lot of characteristics that you need to keep in mind and take into account when you do word studies. It's not just a simple matter of going to a dictionary and say, oh, number one, this is what it means. And this is what it means in every passage no matter whether it's Paul, Peter, James, Old Testament, New Testament. So you have to look at how did this author use this term in this particular context. What was the meaning that he assigned to it? That's very important. In this particular context. Keeping in mind that maybe he's using it now in a theological sense as opposed to maybe it's everyday sense. Any questions on that? Seven characteristics, or major characteristics. Number one, words are arbitrary signs, either verbally or written. Secondly, words have a range of meaning, sometimes very broad and sometimes very narrow. Thirdly, it's the usage or the context that determines how a word is used and its meaning. Fourthly, it's the author that assigns that meaning. The author, whether it's a speaker or whether it's a written text, what did he assign in terms of a meaning? Recognize that words change over time. So just because Jesus used a word does not mean that that's how the word is set. Paul maybe used it in a different way. And when Paul uses it, and we read what Paul said, it has that special sense where the disciples probably really didn't understand what Jesus meant fully. wouldn't until after Pentecost and after the church was actually established that the disciples began to understand what ecclesia meant. And then uh, we use words with overlapping meaning, and there's connotative and denotative meanings that you want to look at. Okay, let me give you a procedure, and on your outline sheet I've got this outline there, so all of this is on your outline sheet, so let's expand what we have there. Uh, what is involved in doing a word study? And the first thing, there's two stages, and you'll spend a lot more time in the first stage because it'll be very labor-intensive. The first stage is to develop the range of meaning. In other words, how could this word be used in any number of contexts. So you're going to develop range of meaning. And what you're essentially doing is you are developing a dictionary. You're doing the exact same thing that a person that puts together a dictionary does. Except what you are doing is you're doing a dictionary of words that are useful. New Testament and Old Testament. So this is what lexicographers do. And this is what a dictionary is. A dictionary doesn't give meanings. A dictionary... Raise your eyebrows. (laughs) What? (laughs) A dictionary, I'll say it again, does not give meanings. A dictionary gives range of meanings. And if you look at a dictionary, any dictionary, doesn't matter, Webster's or whatever, Random House... It gives you, number one, this is how this word can be used. Number two, this is the second way this word can be used. Number three, just like our circle with trunk, that's the range of meaning, that's what dictionaries do. So it gives you a range of possible ways that word can be used. And what you'll be doing is doing the exact same thing that a lexicographer does, except what you'll be doing is you'll develop the range of meaning from Scripture. In other words, how is this word used in Scripture overall? And then once you have an understanding and that foundation, okay, this word can be used in these five ways in Scripture, or two ways. Now I'm going to select how is it used in this particular passage. That's the second stage. But before we get to the second stage, how do you develop the range of meaning? The range of meaning of any given word, And we're talking about the Bible now. The first and basic thing is look it up in a concordance. You're looking it up in a concordance. Now, most of you are familiar, I would think, with what a concordance does. All a concordance is doing is giving you the location of where that word is used in Scripture. That's all a concordance is. And today there are an abundance of resources. 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, there was, there were two basic tools. We were dependent on Young's concordance. And what's the other one that we were dependent on? Strong's concordance. Bible students either used Young's, or Strong's, and that was basically all that was available. Young's and Strong's can still be used today. In fact, this is a basic tool that most Bible students have. But today, we also have electronic concordances. In other words, ways of looking for different words, their location in in Scripture, using electronic tools. And there's also some more updated concordances that supplement. Young's and Strong's are both based on the King James. So it's giving you the usages from the King James. There are some New American Standard, for example, concordances that give you usages from New American Standard. And you just look up the word in a concordance. Now, here is where I'm going to show you how you can, with one additional tool, do a word study in the original language. But youngs and strongs will also, they have some other little keys in them that will give you, that will guide you to the particular Greek word or Hebrew word. And all you need to know is the Greek alphabet or the Hebrew alphabet, uh, depending on what you're doing. So you would start, if, if you haven't taken Greek and you're not familiar with Greek, you start with Young's or Strong's, and if you're familiar with each of them, in fact, I'm going to show you a page of Young's, but uh, Strong's does exactly the same thing. You can find out what is that Greek word that is utilized, because you'll find it in Either Strong's or Young's. Okay, here is a slide of a page out of Young's, as you can see. And let's say you're going to do, and I've got an example on your sheet there, of the word redeem. If you just go to Young's and you look it up, obviously they're in alphabetical order, and you come to the word redeem, You have a listing here. Number one, number two, number three, number four. Now, I didn't include all of number one just so that it all fit on one sheet so you could see. Now, on this first listing, it gives you a meaning to free and it even gives you a little expansion here by avenging or repaying. But notice over here, did you ever notice that in your youngs? I don't know if you use young, you use strongs. But you can do the same thing the numbering system, you can go to the back and find out the particular Hebrew word. And it even gives you a transliteration how you can pronounce it in English. It's ga'al. That's a gimel there. That's not a noon. It's a gimel. Ga'al, or if you want to pronounce it in English, there it is. And what it's going to do, it's going to show you Where ga'al is used in this sense to free, and it's going to give you a list of the Old Testament. Now, if you're going to do a complete word study, you might want to go to the Old Testament as well, and you might even want to do a particular word study on the Hebrew word ga'al, and I'll show you how you can do that. Well, actually, I'll do it from the Greek, but you can do the same corresponding in Hebrew. So, you go down all of the list and it's used in Genesis forty-eight sixteen, Exodus six six, etc., cetera, et cetera, several in Leviticus, and then I skipped over and and I'm not sure exactly where else, but at the end of this listing of number one, I have Micah four ten, but it's also used same word gaal to be freed, slightly different connotation, Leviticus twenty five forty nine. Now this is the editor's breakdown. You're going to do your own breakdown. And there's a third sense. And you keep going down. You notice here, in fact, I think I got this one highlighted. Here's a different Hebrew word. That's pada. So you have two Hebrew words, ga'al and pada. So you can do a word study on it as well. Both of them, at least in uh, King James, is translated redeem or to free. And it has this idea of redeem. But what you've done here is you now you know the Hebrew So if you're doing a Hebrew word study, now you can look it up in a Hebrew uh, concordance. And I'll show you how to do that in a moment. But we're going to do it in the Greek. This is just the continuation here. So number five, number six, number seven, number eight, number nine. And notice we finally get kana. Number eight is to acquire at the forum. And here we have the first Greek usage or the first Greek word, agorazo. And here's the transliteration. This is how you'd pronounce it in English, agarazzo. And it gives the listings of where it is used in this sense. Then there's a nine here, so there's three times in this sense according to Young's. Four times to acquire out of the forum. Uh, here's a different word, eggs agarazzo. Same word except it has a eggs prefix, ek prefix. Galatians 3.13, 4.5, Ephesians 5.10, Colossians 4.5. And then number 10 here we have a different Greek word that's used that can have that same sense of redeem or to loose, lutrao. What I'm telling you here is let's say we are doing a word study of, uh, or we're doing a study in Ephesians 5. That's the passage you chose to do your paper on let's say, and in Ephesians 5, you want to do a study on the word redeeming right there, and now that word, you now you know that the word that is used specifically in the Greek text is exagorazo. So you've identified it. So now you can do a Greek word study of the specific word that is used in the specific context that you're studying. See how you can do that? Without knowing Greek, all you need to know is the alphabet so that you can look it up. You don't even need to know the alphabet, all you can do is, all you need to know is to identify the word. There is a readily available, in fact it's been around for probably over a hundred years, a book that is a concordance, it's called Englishman's Greek Concordance. It's Englishman's Not because it is in English, but it's Englishman's because that was the compiler of it. That was his name, Mr. Englishman, or Dr. Englishman, or whatever. But what he's done is basically he's put together a concordance of, and it's exhaustive, of the Greek, particular Greek words. So now you can go to Englishman's, and you can take a look at that. Everything's in English except the Greek word. And just like any concordance, it's in alphabetical order. And what he will do, I just, here's the beginning of whatever word that is there. And then from that break to that break, those are all the listings of that particular word. What this is doing for you is now you are, you have isolated the very specific word that is used in that context that you're looking at. And now you're going to do a word study. This is going to give you precision in your word study. Now you're doing a word study on the word that you're looking at in that particular context, and you're you're looking at the original word. See how simple that is? So all you need is this additional tool after you've looked it up in your Young's or Strong's. Or if you already have a little Greek background, then when you're reading your Greek text you can pull out the word directly and you don't have to go to Young's. But I'm giving you the procedure so you can do it even though you don't know Greek. There's a corresponding Englishman's Hebrew concordance, same guy. He did a lot of work there. This is before computers. (laughs) So he did a lot of work. And it's laid out the same way and everything is in English. But instead of the English words, now you have the Hebrew words. So with those two tools, you can do original language word studies. And basically that's, those are the tools that I utilize in my word studies. Now I don't go to Young's, uh, you know, I'll be studying from the original text, from the, the Greek text, and I'll come up with the Greek word or Hebrew word, and then I'll go to either Greek or Hebrew Englishmans. See how you do that? So the next step here, well there's agorazo, there's exagorazo. So the word redeem is, can occur in the English text from three different Greek words. But you don't have to do a word study on every one of those words. You can do one on the specific word that uh, you're interested in. Now if you want to do it on all three, that's fine too. So from Young's, you can determine, and there's some other ones in there as well, but the major one is ga'al, is the Hebrew. Pada is another Hebrew word. So you could do word studies on them if you're dealing with a passage in the Old Testament. Or if you want a more complete study, you can do them. If you want to do like a theological study on that word, you can do that as well. And then in the Greek text, there's Agarazo or New Testament, and there's uh, primarily ex agarazzo and then lutrao, I could have included that as well. But what you've done is you've you derived the Greek or Hebrew word from young's, in this case, and you can do the, the same thing from strong's. Strong's will give you the same thing. That makes sense? Does that understand how you can do that? Pretty simple. I would recommend that you always do your word studies from the original language. You can do it. It's pretty simple. All you need to do is just purchase either one of those or, prioritizing the New Testament, I'd get at least the Greek. Well, here's a page out of Englishman's, as you can look at it there. It has agorazo at the top, so all you have to know is the, or identify the Greek letters to be able to find it in the book and it'll give you every usages it occurs 31 times in the new testament and exagorazo i can't remember 4 or 5 i can't remember but this is the primary word so if you want to do a word study on it starting with matthew 13:44 all the way to revelation 18:11 those are all of the usages of agarazzo. So the word doesn't occur that frequently. 31 is not very many. There are some words... I've, I've done a word study on a word in the Old Testament that occurs 5,000 times. And if you want to look up every one of them, so you have to look up 5,000 different usages. Uh That was kind of a specialized thing that pertained to an important issue that I had to deal with. So I took the time to do that. It took me off and on an entire summer to do it, but... <laughs> but it's very valuable and uh, glad I did it after it was all done. But now, back to the uh, kind of steps in our procedure. What you want to do now, now that you know the word in the original language that you want to do a word study on, you look up each of these. Now, you have just a portion of that verse in there. Now, sometimes you can see how it's used just from that little Part of the, the passage. But most of the time you want to actually open up your Bible to Matthew, read a little bit of the context to see what they're talking about, to see how the word is used. So we're going to do a word study on agarazzo. So what you do is you look up each usage. How is it used in this context? How is it used here? How is it used here? And now just like if you looked it up in your lexicon, it's going to have one, two, three, or however many usages. You're going to put together your own groupings or your own categorization. You're going to put up, put together your own range of meaning. Okay, here's an example of what we just did at the top there. Usage. How's the word used? Here's the range of meaning. You see that at the very top? possible ways that, and then I've got uh, A is agorazo, and I've listed there all of the usages of Agarazzo occurs 31 times in the New Testament, I've got every one of them there, and I've included a part of the verse just as your concordance does there, so you get a feel of the context. And then B there. There's exagerado. So it only occurs four times in the New Testament. And I also noticed another observation I made. It's only in Paul. And by the way, that's the word I'm interested in. But because it's only used four times, you have a harder time developing a range of meaning. In other words, you don't have kind of a lot of passages to develop a full range of meaning. So in that case, it's good to go to the kind of the the, the root word which is agorazzo where you have 31 and now because you have 31 usages and you'll notice that the usage is very similar exagorazzo used very similar to agorazzo if you have a handle on agorazzo it's going to help you with exagorazzo does that make sense so from Englishman's I got all of the listings I looked each of them up and now I begin to categorize them, one, two, three, and I find that agarazzo is used in three senses. Two basic senses. The first basic sense is, as I note on your outline sheet, to buy in a literal and even a commercial sense. In other words, just to go to the mall basically and buy something in that sense. I also made the observation that it's in the Gospels, it's used 21 times. So it's used in this literal kind of commercial sense, 21 times in the Gospels, and it's in always in the Gospels in a literal sense. And then I give you the examples there, and I've broken it down further in that literal sense. In other words, in the different contexts, it's used of buying food, it's used of buying land, it's used of buying oxen a pearl, uh, oil, etc. So I kind of broken it down as to what literally is purchased or what is in view in the transaction of the verb idea agarazzo. And I've got them all listed there. Final category that it doesn't give anything specific but it uses the word in a general sense there, but it's also a literal sense there. You see that? So you can break down What I've done there is basically break break down these larger categories into A, B, etc. Refinement. I've kind of gone to extremes here, just just to give you what you can do. Every word will be different, and you'll want to go into some detail in some words, and others you may not. But this gives you an idea of every usage of this word, agorazo. Now, I see it used in a second sense to buy in a more figurative, non-literal sense by Jesus himself to the church in Laodicea. So that one usage, he's using it in a a non-literal sense, in a figurative sense. If you look at the context, Revelation 3.18, to the church at Laodicea. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich. And then he concludes the verse there. He's not talking about literal gold there, if you read the context. So it's used in a non-literal sense, in a figurative sense. But then I notice that it's also used in a non-literal sense, but more in a theological sense, in a third way, to purchase or redeem. But now it's theological. It's not at Walmart or it's not at it's not buying something at the mall. More theological. In reference to believers, 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you have been bought. And it's not necessarily with currency here. And I've got it bolded there. Have been bought, the verb there, with a price. So it has the idea of purchasing and it has the idea of price associated with it. In other words, there's a cost. And First Corinthians, therefore glorify God in your body. And if you keep reading, you find out that the cost is, in some context made clear, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That was the cost. And Revelation 5.9 is used in that theological sense. Even false teachers, even denying the Master who bought them, the word agorazo is there. 144,000, kind of broken that one down in terms of who has been purchased. You see the three different ways that it's used? You could break it down into two categories, literal and metaphorical, and include the Jesus reference there, the Revelation 3.18, but I've separated it because there's a slightly different usage there. Jesus is not using it so much in a theological sense, but he is certainly using it in a metaphorical or non-literal sense. You see this the distinction there? So that's agorazo. and then in Exagorazo, I've just broken it down in two categories Christ's redemption, you have the Galatians passage, two Galatians passages. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Galatians four five. Redeem again. And then finally, I get uh, making the most of the time. Making uh, You have a cross-reference in Ephesians 5.16. The word exagorazo is used in the Ephesians passage. And in the Colossians 4.5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Kind of parallel with the Ephesians passage. But it's not used in a theological sense there. Roman numeral 2, this is what the lexicon The standard lexicon, if you have access to it, uh, Art and Gingrich, Bauer, A and G. The abbreviation I'm using there. To buy, to purchase, and it uses it, or it sees the usage in two senses, literal sense. Two literal senses. It doesn't give a figurative sense, actually. Buy, acquire, as property. Exile, garazo, redeem, deliver, make the most of time, so it breaks it down, kind of like I did. And there's other words that you could look up. And then the meaning and context, there's that second major category, Galatians 3.13. I see it being used in a theological sense, referring to believers bought by Christ with the price of His death, and now we are His slaves. So that's how I kind of isolate and kind of expand how Paul is using it in the Galatians 3.13 passage. See how I got there? gives you an example. Now, if you do a word study, you don't have to necessarily copy the verses like I've done, but what I'd like for you to do is come up with these categories and put the verses that relate to the way that it's used in in the particular context of those verses. Now, do you just go ahead and use the... I mean, you don't use the King James translation. You use... What I used in this example is New American Standard. Yeah, okay. I mean, you can use the version that you like. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. The bottom line is you're trying to even go beyond the, the English. And as you can see, that the translation didn't even tell us about redeem here. But in the Colossians passages, it gives you a meaning that it doesn't even seem related to redeem. You see that? What you're trying to get at, though, is you're trying to get at What did Paul intend by that word that he used? That's that's what you're looking for. All of this work, that's the bottom line. That's what you're trying to get at. And by the way, you can use the same procedure to take it one step further. In that, let's say, okay, I want to understand theologically how that word is used. In other words, what does the word redemption mean theologically? You use the same procedure, but now what you're trying to understand by developing a range of meaning is the theological sense. So you might sort out the other usages, but the usages in the literal sense is going to give you the foundation for the word. Does that make sense? Virtually every theological word in the Bible has a everyday street literal usage. Redeem, here, is an example of one word like that. Redeem is a word that comes out of the marketplace. It's associated with commerce. It's associated with purchasing. And what the writers of the Bible, including Old Testament, have done, have taken these words. These words did not originally have theological meaning. But now they have taken on the additional meaning in a theological sense. And that's true of virtually every theological word of the Bible. So the everyday usage, like redeem. It comes out of the uh, commercial environment. and has the idea of buying. But now we're thinking in terms of salvation or our relationship to God is a costly and it's a commercial transaction. Not where currency is exchanged, but something is, is expended. Something is costly involved there. So the death of Christ is is extremely costly in affecting our spiritual redemption. You get it? But uh, let's think of some other... Jim suggested salvation. What's the basic, everyday, non-theological sense of that word? That's the foundation and that's the basis of the word. You somebody or something from something. Okay, or rescue rescue would fit yeah rescue and what's another deliverance You have to to deliver from something and usually there's a danger associated or harm that is potential involved that's the literal everyday sense and if you study sozo and the corresponding soteria the noun if you study the noun form or the verb form you can find even in the New Testament, but and particularly in the Old Testament, salvation from a variety of things in a literal, physical sense. Just like we did with uh, redemption. In fact, one of them that comes to mind is in Acts chapter twenty-seven when they were in the the ship in the storm. He uses the word in that context, but he's using the idea of salvation that we you know the word for salvation, and he's talking about being delivered from dying in that storm. If you did a word study of salvation, particularly in the New Testament, you're going to find that it has, besides that literal everyday street meaning, if you will, it's used in three ways. And you have to be careful to distinguish because in some contexts, most people think salvation... The moment I trusted in Jesus Christ, I was saved, and that's the only meaning, and they import that meaning everywhere else, and that's a mistake, because in some context, it's not used in that way. And it's not used in the literal sense. It's used in a different theological sense, and there's at least three different ways. I'll give you that example later on. I'm going to use it in another context. Let's take a break.